Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We thank you for your care and your love and all that you show us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 24, starting at verse 1. And the Lord showed me, and behold, two basket of figs were set before the temple of the Lord after that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away the captive Jehoianiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the prince of Judah, and with the carpenters and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket was, had very good figs, like, unto, like figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then said the Lord unto me, What see you, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, good figs, very good and evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that were carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. And I will set my eyes upon them for good and will bring them again into this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I shall be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are, so, they are so evil, surely thus saith the Lord, so I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jer- Jerusalem, that remain in the land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land which I gave them and to their fathers. This is an interesting little setting, uh, parable. The setting is and the time is before the final captivity, but the first wave of captives have gone out. When Jehoiah, Jehoiachin, I'm going to give him the other name that he was given, Jehoiachin, or Jehoiachin, uh, was taken. And so the Lord showed Jeremiah two baskets of figs. Now, figs are something that's very important to them. Figs were a sweetener. They used it for, in the, as sugar along with honey. And it was also a symbol of prosperity and blessing, figs were. So the lack of them, the the bad figs are going to be lack of prosperity and divine judgment. So God shows him two baskets of figs set before the temple. And then it says, after Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin, was carried away, and his princes, and it says, and the carpenters, and the carpenter here is not just woodworkers, it's anybody who is a skilled worker, engravers and all of that. And in 2 Kings 24, 16, this event tells us that there, when Jehoiachin was taken away, 7,000 mighty men were taken from him, 
uh, 1,000 artisans or craftsmen and, and smiths and then all the warriors. So when Nebuchadnezzar came through, he took the strength of Israel away along with Jehoiachin and left very few people to be able to do any kind of repair work or any kind of building. He was trying to destroy the nation uh, at that point in time. And it says the carpenters, the smiths, and again, these smiths would be blacksmiths, uh, 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 locksmiths, and literally the word means those who build enclosures and fortify doors and, and, and build up fortresses. So these guys, he took all the people who could be able to rebuild the walls that he had damaged to in the taking of Jerusalem. So they could not reinforce, they could not uh, be able to make new weapons. And so he took away all the, the strength, all the strength of Israel. And this was the, the curse that God had set on them. He says, you're not repenting, I'm going to bring judgment. And Jehoiachin and the strength of Israel was taken away at this point in time to be captive. And he says, one basket was very, had, had very good figs, even like figs that were first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so, they were so bad. So this first basket he looks at, first ripe, the first fruit. Uh, apparently, figs produce three, three major crops. The best one is the first crop or the first fruits, which God says he, he asked for the first fruits of all the, all the crops. And then the second and third ones were the less and less uh, good <laughs> harvest. So this first batch of basket was the, the best. He's looking at it and saying, these are really good figs. Um, and figs are delicious. They look funny, but they're, they, they are delicious. <laughs> and he says the second basket, and I love this word, the way they translated it, naughty, <laughs> uh, literally means they were evil or malignant. So he's almost talking not about the fruit itself, but a characteristic. And because, as we read on there, he's talking about that second basket representing Zedekiah and the remainder of the of the people that were left in Israel. And Zedekiah, when, in Kings again, we read, he was even more evil than Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. So he was more evil, more uh, against God. And he's represented by this other basket of grapes that are so, uh, grapes, of figs that are so bad that Jeremiah says we looked at it and we wouldn't even, <laughs> wouldn't even eat it. Um, yeah, no, it's a vision. Not necessarily a parable, but a vision where God's teaching them a lesson from the, from the vision. Because I don't believe there were actually these baskets sitting out in front of the temple that looked this way. But, you know, it also does, when he's looking at it, he says, here is a basket that is a, at least a decent offering for God and one that isn't even worth giving to God, and yet they were both presented to God. And the evil of Jerusalem was getting that bad that people were presenting things to God and God said, I don't want your stuff. I don't need your stuff. And many times we end up doing the same thing with God where we keep giving him stuff that he doesn't, he didn't ask for, he didn't need, it's our surplus. And God says, I want your whole heart. And this is what's very important. You know, if we 
the poor person who gives a small offering like the widow's mite in Jesus' day. She gave only two, less than two pennies. And God and Jesus said she gave more than all those scribes and Pharisees were throwing bags of money in because they were doing it for the wrong reason and out of their surplus. And she gave from her heart out of her poverty. You know, and you know, I've heard people say when they get to heaven, they want to talk to so many people. I want to talk to people like the widow, the widow who gave her two mites. I want to know the rest of the story. I don't believe she went off and died by giving her last pennies to, to God, especially when Jesus noted it. I, I think something special happened to her after that, and I'd love to find out what the rest of the story was. You know, because we just it drops. You know, she gives Jesus says she gave all she had. And yet every other place where we see some people giving all that they have, God stretched what the little they had left or whatever and blessed them. But I do, I'm kind of, I'm, especially in her and some other, some other key characters in the Bible who just show up, they do something, and you never hear about them. You never hear what happened to them after they, after they did this little, little thing. You know, it's like they just fell off the face of the earth. It's like they did something. And that was all that mattered, and God said, okay, that's all you need to know. It's not that the majority of us, we want to know what David was taking through. And I'm not so worried about them, because I kind of figure, I, I figure I can know what they thought, <laughs> to a degree. Most people are that way. I want, to, I want to know Paul. I want to know David. I want to know Jonathan. I want to know these. I want to know all the big names. And I'm looking at the characters that you know, are just on the sides and going, what happened? How did you do this? What happened after this happened? Um, and those are the kind of things I'm kind of curious about, the ones that just pop in for a moment of the story and then are gone. Because it's quite amazing when you look at some of these stories how somebody, say, you know, somebody made one person, brought one person to the Lord and then that person brought one person to the Lord and then, then they get to an evangelist or something and everything explodes. And if it wasn't for the first person doing their job, <laughs> other person may not have ever <laughs> been reached. So I kind of think of those kind of things once in a while. And then the verse 3 says, Then said the Lord unto me, What see you, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah see figs, good figs, very good figs, and evil, very evil that cannot be, be eaten. They are so evil. Oh, I didn't get back to this naughty. I had that word naughty there. Uh, yes, I did, didn't I? I covered naughty. <laughs> so Jeremiah says, I see good figs and bad figs. <laughs> now, can you put yourself in Jeremiah's picture, uh, shoes, sandals there for a moment? He's... God's shown him the temple. He's shown him two baskets of figs. And I can almost picture Jeremiah saying, all right, what's the purpose of standing here in front of two baskets of figs? How many times do we do the same thing to God where we look at what's going on around us and say, God, I don't understand what's going on. And we have a decision to, to look for what he is telling us or to reject it. And Jeremiah could have just said, hey, I see two baskets of figs. Who cares? And you know, walks away. God's talking to him, so he's paying attention. But, you know, I, it could have been so easy to say, well, I, there's some good figs. I want those figs over there. Those ones, I don't want them. Uh, th those are terrible figs. They're bad figs. They're evil figs. And then God says, again, the word of the Lord came, came to me saying, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, and I like this, the, the God of Israel, and this is very interesting because the first one is, is Lord. And if you have a, the older King James Bibles, you're going to find that it's all in capital letters, which means it is the name Yahweh, the, 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 the name of God that he gave to, to Moses. And it says, I am the God of Israel, the God 
which is Elohim, which is a plural word for God, which means, but it's still one God. So I am Yahweh, the gods of Israel. <laughs> and so this is the name that he's given to them. Like these good figs, so I will acknowledge or recognize them that were carried away captive to Ju of Judah. It says, I recognize them. They are, they are the ones that I went in. Now, of this group that went in, we have people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are part of this group that gets carried away at this time. The, the princes of Israel get carried away. The king of Israel gets carried away. Uh, most of his, ar his army gets carried away. Uh, most of the artisans get carried away. The smiths get carried away. They're left with the, basically the dregs of society are left. And at this point in time, God says, I will acknowledge and recognize them. And, keep, and he says he's going to keep them. And this is very important that he keeps them. And he says, and I love this, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for good. That there should not be there. In the King James, it's italics. It doesn't belong there for good. God says, I sent these, I sent the best of Israel away. Now, were these being really good people? Some of them, like Daniel and them, were, were good. But they're good in comparison to those who were left behind. All right? Uh, they're still bad because the whole nation is being judged. But God says, I took the best out of them for their good. I'm going to take them into Babylon, where they're going to be able to live in peace. And we know from history that when they went there, and through the Bible, when they went there, they settled into Babylon and the areas around Babylon, they started businesses, they built homes, and kind of went too far the other direction. They, they wanted to forget God to a degree. And they still remembered God, but they were ready to stay. And by 70 years later, many of them didn't want to go back to Israel when the time came to go back. Uh, they were happy where they were at. They had established new homes and weren't ready to go, weren't ready to go back. And it says, he sent him into the land of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians for their good, for, for good. Something that was going to bless them, to encourage them, to, to protect them. They were no longer having to go through war and famine and pestilence and all the stuff that was happening in Jerusalem because of the judgments of God. And the battles and go, you've got to think, Nebuchadnezzar had been bombarding the land and capturing all the cities. And these people were taken out of that area and taken to a place of relative peace. Even though Babylon was at war, nobody was attacking the capital and the areas they were taken, taken to. So it was a peaceful time. It was for their good. They were taken out of the war zones and put into peaceful areas. They didn't know all the people around them, but at least it was peaceful. And they were able to have food and not be at, be at war. So this was for, for good. It definitely helped them out. And then it says, for verse 6, For I will set my eyes upon them for good. So God says, I will watch them. I will, I will place them, place my eye on them for good. I love that idea. When God is watching us and we're getting blessed because he's watching. You know, and I've heard people go, well, it's so scary, the idea that God is watching me. 
Well, I am glad he's watching me. It doesn't scare me. Yes, I may be sinning and I don't want him to necessarily see that, but he sees it no matter what. But to know that he's watching me for good is so wonderful. He doesn't have evil plans for, for us, especially his children. He says, I have got nothing but good for you. For all things work together for good for those who love God and are called, called according to his purpose. God has a good plan. Now, we may not understand his good plan. They didn't understand the good plan of being removed from Israel and being placed into the Babylonian kingdom. They, that didn't make any sense to them. It wasn't, wasn't what they wanted, at least what they thought they would, didn't want. But God says, I have a plan for you. My eyes on you. He says, I will bring them again. So he says, I'm going to bring them back to Israel. And we're told in Isaiah that it was going to be 40 year, uh, 70 years of captivity. And the reason for the captivity was because they had missed 70 jubilees. And God says, uh, seven jubilees. And he goes, you're going to have one, one year of captivity for each of the jubilees you missed. So they were going to be in captivity for 40, uh, 70 years to make up for the 490 years that they didn't practice their jubilee, the, land, the, the rest of the land. So God, God told them even ahead of time, if they, had known their, if they had known their scriptures, they would have known what was going on. God brings judgment, and he even told them how long it would be, and he even told them who it would be that would release them, who of course was not even a king at this point, because Cyrus, his name is in the scriptures, that says Cyrus will send back, will be my shepherd who will send my people back. So when King Cyrus came up, I believe Daniel especially recognized this is the man who's sending my God's people back. It's been 70 years. Cyrus is now king. And I imagine that Daniel actually showed Cyrus the, the scripture saying, look here, Cyrus, your name's, in the, your name's in our books. And I didn't write these. These have been written hundreds of years ago before anybody knew you or knew about you. So all of this, God says, I acknowledge them. I, will, I have sent them. I will set my eye on them. I will bring them again, and I will build them and not pull them down. God says, I will build them up. And this is really very important for me to, to bring out because how many Christians believe that God is not for them? God doesn't, I never see any blessings. God doesn't love me. God builds his people up. Because the people God took away were sinners in, 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 ju in judgment. And God says, I will build them up and not tear them down. And this is important as we look at this because God says that he loves us. Especially his children. He loves the whole world, but his children are his children. And he has every emotion that any parent would have toward their children. Taking care of them, building them up, and encouraging them. Uh, I have not seen very many parents who didn't want their kids to do better than they did. And have to be better off financially, better positioned, better educated, whatever it might be. And I think God has that same attitude toward us. He wants us to be, be improved. And here he says, I'm going to build them up. I'm going to establish them and not tear them down. And I know so many things, people that believe that God is just sitting there and this is, you know, this is the attitude of most people that God's up there with a whole bunch of lightning bolts or, 
or something, waiting for us to do wrong things so that he can, can destroy us. I feel sorry for people who have that picture of God. I see a very loving father who says, oh, you fell down, let me help you pick you back up and let's get you back on that bike. Let's get you back on the, in the game. Let's put, you, let's put you forward on this, whatever term you like to use. Not sitting there, oh, I'm so glad you fell down and hurt yourself. I'm, you know, that's not God. And he says, I build them up. These people did not deserve to be built up. They were, they were part of the culture that was worshiping idols and, and, and not following God. And God said, you're still the best. I'm still, you're still the best ones out there, and I'm still going to bless you, and I'm just going to give you all these things. I'm going to build you up. He says, I'm going to plant and not pluck you up. So he repeats it. So this is kind of a poetic statement because he repeats it. Okay? Not only am I going to build you up, I'm going to plant you. I'm going to, again, establish you where you're at and not be pulling you up. What did, what did Jesus say in the parable of the weed and the tares when the angel said, shall we go pull up the tares? And he goes, no, don't pull up the tares because you might pull up the, the weed as well. We'll wait till it's harvest time and then we'll separate them. And you know, this is something that's very important for us. God loves us so much that he's not going to do harm to us by getting rid of something else in our, you know, near us. And we need to understand the love of God. How much does he really love us to be able to minister to us and to do the best for us, even when it doesn't seem like it? I know most everybody's heard the statement that my dad used to always say when it was discipline time, it was gonna, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You know, and I remember as a kid, I'm going, yeah, right, I'm the one that's not going to be able to sit down for the rest of the day. How is it hurting you? First time I had to spank one of my kids, I realized how hard it was to inflict a pain on my, on my child. And I've told people, if you, it doesn't hurt you to give a spanking to your kid, you better not be spanking your kid because you're not, you don't have the right level of love for them. You know, I did not want to inflict pain on my kids, but I knew that they needed discipline, so it would be something very important to do. God is the same way. It's not that he's sitting up there just looking forward to punishing us, but he knows that it will be for our good. And he plants and he establishes and he builds up the individual. And this is very important for us to, to see and to understand um, because of all this stuff, these that had been carried away were the best. Now, they weren't good, they weren't perfect, but they were the best that the land, that the, the nation had. And then he goes, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God and they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Now, I love this statement and I don't know that it was made true even when they first came back. He goes, I will give them a heart. The, and in the Hebrew, the word heart is the innermost being of our seat of our emotions. So he says, I'm going to give them in their innermost being a desire to know me. I love that idea, to know God. And I really do think that when we become Christians, God gives us a heart. He takes the stony heart out of us. He puts a heart of flesh into us. And it's a heart that wants to know God. And how do we get to know him? We get to know him through the scriptures. We get to know him through being taught, through fellowship with other believers. 
And God puts that heart in us that says, I want to know God. Before that heart's in us, we don't want to know God. Matter of fact, we're scared of God because he might, he might ruin all of our fun and tell us to, to not do the things we think we're wanting to do. Even though we're not enjoying what it is he's tell, that we're doing, we're afraid that he's going to stop us from doing what little joy we do get. And in, you know, we don't understand that when we get that heart for God, everything changes. Because now we're seeking the one that can actually fulfill us and fill that empty spot within our life. And he says, I'm going to give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord, the God, the one and only God, the, the I am, the beginning and the end. Because that I am God and they shall be my people or my nation and I will be their God or their Elohim. Okay. Um, For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And we see this happening. When somebody gets saved, somebody becomes a Christian, they come after God, hopefully with a whole heart, seeking him, wanting to know him in a very deep and intimate way. And this is one of the things that we can know that you have a real, that you are a changed person. You are a Christian because you get that heart that seeks God, wants him. You may not know how to fulfill it, maybe, but you get that heart that really wants to seek and fulfill him. And the hope is then that you get into a good church that builds that and edifies you know, and helps that out rather than a church that destroys that, that or no church, uh, which is even worse, I guess. But we need to be able to say, I want to follow God. And he says, they will come after me with their whole heart, their whole being, from the innermost being of them. They come to God and say, I am going to come to you. And this is the beauty of it. And this is a God-given thing. And this is, this is what really becomes difficult because this gets us into, did I choose God or did he choose me whole mentality? Because God says, I'm the one that gives them the heart to come after me. I'm the one that gives them the desires to, to fl- fall after me and, and to, to seek me. And the only thing I can say is that when we follow him and we have that heart, God gave it to us. If we didn't, he didn't give it to us. And we know that he is going to be one that is not going to be able to say, you know, well, God, you didn't give it to me, so you can't judge me. God says, I offered it to you and you rejected it. But once we accept that direction, he gives all of that to us and gives us the great desire to seek him, to follow him, to get to know him. And as we're told, you know, by Pascal, that everyone has a God-shaped vacuum in their, in their, in their heart, in their heart. And because it's God-shaped, it's infinite, it's large, it cannot be filled by anything from this world. And once we get it, God gives us that heart to seek him, to seek after him. One of the gifts that I got when I was saved was that I wanted to know God's word. As well as a 10-year-old could get to know God's word, I wanted to know his word. And I studied, and I, and I did Bible studies, and I sought all the answers that I possibly could. And then I started learning how to study and learning more and listening to the Holy Spirit. But I've always wanted to know God and know him intimately and know what he wants and how he wants it to go forward. And this is what he says to these people. I'm going to give you a, and they will come after me with their whole heart. And what a wonderful gift that is that God says, I do these for you. 
And that's one of the things in this section there, the, those four verses I, I saw in there, God says, I will acknowledge them. I have sent them. I will set my eye on them. I will bring them again. I will build. I will, I will plant. I will give them a heart to know me. And he says, I will be their God. That's a lot of things that God is doing. And this is very important for us to understand. God does the work for his children. This is why I'm starting to tell people when they first get saved, read Ephesians 1 and 2 and see all the different things that God says that we are. We're sealed, we're, we're made righteous, we're made, declared right, and all the different things that it says in Ephesians 1 and 2 about who we are. And all of them are God does the work. And one of the beautiful things about this is that it's God who does the work. It's not what I can do because I'd be in trouble if it was what I can do because that's what got me in trouble in the first place. But it's what God does for us. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He makes us, he declares us perfect. You know, and all these things, he gives it, fills us with the Holy Spirit, all the things he does for us. And he is the one that does the work. So that when ultimately I do arrive at something good, I can't say, look what I have done, because it's all God who did it. And this is the beauty of following after God. It's all Him. All right, verse 8 says, And as the evil figs which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith the Lord, so I will give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. So he's talking now about the bad, the, the worst of the worst. All right. We just talked about the, the best of the worst. <laughs> now we're talking about the worst of the worst. Zedekiah. Uh, history tells us that Zedekiah was very thrilled to be getting the kingdom from his, from his brother. Uh, so, and he did not do go good in the eyes of the Lord, and all of his princes and all the leftovers of Jerusalem are going to be taken, taken out. Now, it also tells us, and those that were in Egypt. Many, in Zedekiah's day, many fled to Egypt to try to get away. So, while people were being taken north to Babylon, Zedekiah had a problem that many of his people were headed south to Egypt. And, you know, we, we kind of think this whole idea of refugees or something new, but this was what was happening there. They were refugees coming from Jerusalem to go to Egypt. And when Zedekiah is captured, he's going to be captured when, when Jeremiah said, God says, stay here and just surrender. And he's not going to listen and he's going to try to run for Egypt and get captured. And Jeremiah was forced to go with him, but you know they let go, let, let Jeremiah go. Uh, but this is all happens to as he's going forward and saying, God is going to take everybody who is here left in Jerusalem and, and Judah, and apply these things, and all those who go to Jerusalem uh, go to Egypt. What do we see from that? We can't. People cannot run from God. They cannot get away from God by just going someplace else. God will pursue and follow. And this is what's going to happen to those who leave them and run. He goes, I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their, for their hurt. 
All right. Uh, so God says, I will deliver them. And it says to be removed. And it's kind of an interesting word because removed here is literally to be an object of terror or to be terror. It goes, all these people that are, that are in this bad side, I'm going to put them in places and they're going to be a terror to the people. And I think they're going to be a terror because God pronounces judgment on them and these judgments keep falling upon them. So everywhere they go, bad things happen. And we see this over and over. The, the poor Jewish people have such a such reputation. Part of it is totally undeserved because Satan is trying to destroy them. Some of it is because they're not obeying God and God brings horrible things upon them and where they are. What happened to Egypt when they wouldn't let them go? Egypt was destroyed. What happened to very many other places? People got destroyed. Diseases followed. And all these different things that happen. Because God says I, they will be a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And it says, and again, here's italics. It doesn't belong for hurt instead of for their hurt. So they're going to they're gonna not be a blessing to the people. They're going to be a harm to the people that they go to. And this is a to be very interesting. To be a reproach and a proverb. Uh, to be a taunt and a scorn. Wherever they want, we're going. They're going to be a, t a reproach and a scorn. And this is something that has unfortunately happened to the Jewish people over and over again. God says, I've told Abraham, all nations will be blessed by, by your descendants. And in, here we see the descendants are considered so bad that God says, you're going to be a reproach, a scorn, a taunt, and a proverb. This is what happens to those that oppose God, a byword. All right? Uh, and they're going to be cast out. And then he goes, a taunt and a curse. So you just said taunt, and this is another word for taunt. And this word is actually a sharp, sharp word. The taunt, a sharp word. And, and, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. Now here God says he's going to drive the people out. In verse 5, he sent the good, good ones out. All right? So the bad ones he drives and the good ones are sent. And this whole driving is to impel, to, to, to push, to thrust away. And he says, I'm going to thrust them out of Jerusalem. Into the, into the rest of the world. And it says, I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them. How would you like to be around people who have swords, famines, and pestilence all around them? Because it wouldn't just be them. How do you pick out one person in a crowd, you know, one family in a crowd to, to attack? The whole town would be attacked. The whole village would be, the community would be attacked. Famines, diseases, all of these things that come their way because of their disobedience. What's going to happen as our end days happen and God brings judgment upon this world for all the disobedience of the world. And it's going to get bad you know, as we get to the end days and God, you know, and God says it gets so bad that they're calling good evil, evil good. Uh, they're living after them, their own imaginations. And I don't know how much further we have to go for this to be true because we're already living in our own imaginations. We're already living, calling things that God says good, bad, and what God says bad is good. Uh, I don't even know how many genders we're up to nowadays, but last I knew it was 60 or 70 of them, and I can't figure out how they're coming up with so many genders. But you know, 
Uh, and this is what they're doing. They're living after their own imaginations. If we could just do this, we'd be happy. If we could just do whatever, we're, we're going to be happy. None of that will make them happy. None of it follows what God wants. It will only bring the judgment of God upon this world. And we know it's coming. Uh, if we are at the end days, we know it's very soon that we're going to be called home and the, and the wrath of God falls upon this and 66% of the population of the world dies from his wrath. That's a scary thought, that so many people are going to die in seven-year period of time. First millions disappear by the rapture, and then two out of every three people die during that period of time of trials and tribulations. And God says all of this happens because of the disobedience of the people. And he says, among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave them and to their fathers. So he says they will eventually be completely consumed. Utterly consumed and gone out of the land that was given to them. God says, I gave you Canaan, the promised land. You conquered the people and it was given to you. It was promised to Abraham. It was given to you at the end of the, the wandering in the wilderness. And you possessed it. And now it's going to be taken away. And those that were left are going to die. And that's exactly what they found when they returned to, to the promised land after 70 years. They found a small bunch of half-breed Samaritans and nobody else other than a bunch of foreigners in their land that God had given them. And this is something that's very, very key to what God is saying. He says, I am going to do this to them. All right, chapter 25. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning, concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son, the son of Jeho Josiah, the king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And there, with the which Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even until this day, that is twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but you have not hearkened. And the Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and, and sending them, but you have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Turn you again now every man one from his evil way and from the evil of his doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given unto you and to your fathers forever. And go not out after other gods and serve them, and to worship them, and to provoke me not unto anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. Yet you have not hearkened unto me, says the Lord, that you, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. So here's Jeremiah. This is going back in time now. We're going back to the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoi so we've gone backwards in time since the previous uh, verses. And he says, he said to them, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Jos 
Josiah. Josiah was the great king, one of the greatest kings of, of, of Israel. He cleaned up all the idolatry and all of that. He did a good job bringing people to God, and at least outwardly. And Jehoiakim is now ruling, and, it's, and Jer, uh, Jeremiah said, came to him and said, I have been, uh, in verse 3, for the 13th year of Josiah, since from the 13th year of Josiah, uh, even until this day, for 23 years, I've been, pro- I've been prophesying. That's a long time, especially when there's no, no reward apparent in it. 13 years under Josiah, which you might have seen some reward, and then for 10 more years, seeing nothing but a downward trend. You know, watching his words go out and nobody's following, nobody's obeying. It's getting more and more evil each one of those years as he speaks out. And I love this. It says, I have spoken unto you rising early and speaking, but you have not hearkened. It says, every morning I get up early, probably figuratively goes to the temple and starts preaching, telling them the word of God. Every morning, every day he goes out there to, to tell them about God's word. And, you know, I don't know how Jeremiah did it overall. To keep watching the world get darker and darker and darker. With each passing generation, having to pass more and more idols on the streets. As he goes and to preach the word of God that God gives him. And he says, every morning I've been doing this. Every morning I get up, and it doesn't say how long he preached, but he preached, you know, gave the word of God to them every day. Now, I hope he had at least one or two small successes somewhere along the line, because it would be hard. 23 years of teaching and not one convert coming to him would be very difficult. As he's giving this word, giving the word, giving the word. And then in verse 4, it says, And the Lord has sent unto you, all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. So not only I, but God has had other prophets coming to you every day, speaking the word of God. And we don't know how long those prophets stayed or did their, did their work, but he's saying nobody is listening. Sometimes I feel like that's happening in our world where it seems like not you know not many people are listening you know it's not a nobody because we have churches that are teaching and we're seeing growth but we we speak to so many people and so many people are just not listening to the word of god they want their ears tickled tell me what i want to hear or i'll go someplace else that'll tell me what i want to hear and i for one have always wanted to be hearing god's word even though god's word can irritate me sometimes and make me feel bad and make me want to know that I have to change my life, I want to hear his word. I know that I need to change. And this is what Jeremiah is saying. We've got these guys, I'm doing this, the, the other prophets are doing this. He says, they have said, turn you again, everyone from his evil ways and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that God hath given you and to your fathers forever and ever. He says, if you just repent, if you repent, You'll get to stay here. Are you ready to repent? Basically saying, are you ready to repent? Please repent. You know, he's almost begging. You can almost hear him begging here. 
Would you just listen to God and turn to him? And he will keep you in this land. He will let you stay. Over and over, all through the Old Testament, we see Israel coming to the brink of destruction and then repenting as they're just before they're destroyed. This particular time with Jeremiah, they're not, they're not going to come back from the brink of destruction. They continued in a continual pattern of that. And they're still doing it. And human, humankind still does the same thing. We, it, is, it is called the cycle. We get it to where we sin, and it happens in our own lives too. We get to where we're sinning, 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 and God says, are you ready to repent or be destroyed? And sometimes we repent, sometimes we, sometimes we don't. If we're still alive, we've repented. <laughs> but there comes that point in time where God says, enough is enough. And this is what he was getting with Jerusalem. When you read the book of Judges, that's that whole thing. They, they, they sin, they get judged, they get put into captivity, they repent, and God says, okay, I'm going to send you a deliverer. And that cycle goes all through the book of Judges. It goes all through the book of Kings. And this is so important for us. God uses this. When people will not obey him, he brings judgment. And sometimes it's on a national level, sometimes it's on an individual level, but we go through trials and tribulations, and if we repent... God says, okay, welcome back, here you go. The whole book of Revelation is about God's bringing judgment upon the world that deserves it and that won't repent. Now, some people in the book of Revelation will, will repent, obviously, because there's going, there's going to be a following group that follows 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and there's going to be a group that comes out of the tribulation to start, start the new the millennial kingdom, but it'll be a very small number that makes it through. Will they all be in tribes like 12,000? The 144,000 Jewish believers will be 12,000 from each tribe because that's what it says. Now, those that come to them won't necessarily be out of the tribes because it'll be the whole, out of the whole world that there will be people that come to God by their witness. And if it wasn't just for their witness, there's another verse that says an angel flies through the sky preaching the gospel. So God will actually use the angels, or at least a angel, to preach the gospel. So there's going to be all kinds of things going on during that period of time that bring people to God. And there will be a remnant of people because God always has a remnant of believers. Through all periods of time, he has a remnant of believers. All through scripture, he had a remnant of people that followed him, that sought after him. Uh, during the Dark ages and medieval days, there was a remnant of people that kept the Christian faith alive in spite of all that was going on with the Catholic Church and other groups that were going further and further away from Scripture. There was a remnant that was underneath that was believing God's Word. He's always had a remnant, always will have a remnant. Even during the tribulation period, there'll be a remnant of people seeking after him and to follow him. And so God is always there bringing and drawing people to him. And this is very important as, as we look at this, is that remnant of people that, he, that he's going to keep with him. And he says, but go, and, the, and the rest of the verses, and go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them and to provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands and I will do you no harm. Now, Jeremiah is saying this as he's watching more and more idol worship going on in Jerusalem. 
Now, and this is hard for us to think of, at least for me. You know, I always think of Jerusalem as being the center of worship of God and everything. But Jeremiah keeps saying that they are putting altars everywhere in Jerusalem. Josiah has passed away, and Zedekiah and, and Jehoiakim immediately, under Jehoiakim, they start worshiping idols. And by the time we get to Zedekiah, there's idols on every corner of Jerusalem to every other god. And right now, at this point, he's talking to Jehoiakim, saying, don't do this, don't, because he sees the idols starting to go up in Jerusalem. Do not worship these gods. And God says, if you obey, you will not be kicked out of your land. You'll get to stay in this land forever. And we, as we know, they, they didn't listen. They kept getting worse and worse. And he, goes, and he goes, I will do you no harm if you repent. I love that statement. I will do you no harm if you stay away. And this is a simple thing. He goes, if you just stay away from the idols. Not if you obey the 613 commandments I've given you. you know, if you'll just stay away from the idols, I will do you no harm. What mercy God shows. He goes, I'm not going to expect you to follow every rule. I'm just going to say, will you obey and follow one? Just one. And often God will challenge us to say, will you follow me in just one area? And challenge us just to stay and say, I'm going to follow this one area. Now, once we follow him in that one area, he'll add other areas. But he says, will you just do one? Their one was avoid the idols. Keep worshiping me. And it says, yet you have not hearkened unto me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. How many times do people disobey God, suffer the pain of their disobedience, and then blame God? I've seen it over and over again that people will blame God for the things, the results of their own disobedience. And God just says very simply, why are, are you provoking me to anger with your disobedience? Why, basically saying, why are you making me do these bad things to you when I didn't want to do them anyway, I wanted to bless you if you would only back off and, and behave. It started with Adam. And, you know, how many times he had to ask that question? Over and over again. God always asks the same question over and over again, which is the hard thing about it. You know, Adam, where are you? What was he trying to do with Adam at that point? Adam, will you at least admit what you've done? And what did he say? I'm hiding because I'm afraid. Why are you afraid? Did you eat the fruit that I gave you and told you not to eat? He's asking a question. He already knows the answers. Oh, he already knows the answers. But what is he doing when he asks those questions to us? Will you repent? Will you admit to what you've been done wrong? And even then, Adam did not, did not repent. He goes, the woman that you gave me, you know, gave me the fruit. And I've always thought Adam's answer was kind of easy, uh, interesting, because he pointed both ways. God, she did it, and you gave her to me, so it's your fault. The same thing happened with uh, Cain and Abel. Uh-huh. Well, it's always done, always done that. We always do this. And, of course, Eve immediately pointed to the servant. She didn't even repent. Yeah. And that is man's habit. 
Let me point somebody else out. It's not my problem. I didn't do it. And God is saying, I just want you to repent. He came to Cain, is brought out. You know, uh, Cain, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the voice of your brother's blood is crying out because of what you've done. If Cain had been able to say, yes, I'm sorry, God, I got so mad at him, I killed him, I repent, his whole trial would have been totally different because God's forgiveness would have stepped in. Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to lie to the church or before God. Uh, they wanted everybody to believe that they had given everything that they had made to the, to the church. And as Peter said to you, wasn't it your land? Did it matter? If you wanted to only give half of it, it was your land, but don't try to make us think. Don't lie to God and try to tell him that you've given all. And this is what's so important for all of us. Do we truly stand before God in honesty and repentance? That's all God wants. He knows that we're failed creatures. And if we repent, he's going to forgive. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But that first step is to confess. Admit to God, agree with God that what I have done is wrong. Now, I've seen some people confess by going, well, I didn't know what I was doing and I found myself in sin. That's not confessing. Confession is to say the same thing. God calls it a sin. He calls it evil. We say, God, it was a sin and it was evil. That's confession. And we've got to be able to get to that place where we are ready to confess our sins and be able to stand before God in righteousness. His righteousness, because he's the one that gives it to us when we repent. And this is the beauty of all of this statement is that God is the one that does the work. Over and over again, he is the one that does the work. That makes living Christianity a very simple thing. All I do is surrender to him and let him lead me in what I'm supposed to do. Now I say it's simple, it's not really that simple, but it is a lot simpler than me and my sinful nature trying to do things right for God. I just have to learn to humble myself and to seek after him. We're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to learn to seek you, to repent before you, to follow you in all that we do. Help us to be those that you are going to lead and bless because of our humbleness and our, and our repentance. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. 
I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.